DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of the DevCom Podcast. Today, I'll talk to Chris Cataldi, co-founder and COO at Genvit Technologies. We're going to talk about their mission, about massive interactive live events as something that's really cool, about the disruption of traditional media, and probably many more things. So, Chris, it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you very much, Lars, and thank you for having me on the cast. So how about we kick it off with a little bit of a background on who you are um, for those listeners that are not familiar with Genova Technologies and yourself, obviously. Give us a bit of a you know, breakdown of uh, your journey in the industry so far and what you do at the moment. Sure. So Genovit Technologies was started in uh, 2016 with the mission of creating technology that would let game developers disrupt streaming as it was at the time and is today, which is very much a ecosystem that's built around video games, but doesn't necessarily actually incorporate the interactive element of video games. Uh, and so we started with four co-founders, all of which I were uh, former co-workers at a company called Shinra Technologies, which was Square Enix's cloud gaming platform. And uh, at, at Shinra, our focus was creating brand new game experiences that were powered by the cloud. So not taking a game that you can run on your local device and putting it on a server and seeing what could happen with it, but creating game experiences that could only be powered with the resources and capacity of, you know, the almost unlimited uh, processing and GPU and memory that a, a cloud environment enables. Um, so that's that's our background. In terms of my background, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. Uh, I have a family and a one-year-old son, uh, and th this is all we. I moved back. Uh, from 11 years in Japan in 2015, where uh, at the time I initially worked with the local government in Japan for a few years, then worked for some of the biggest Japanese multinational companies doing kind of global leadership development and entrepreneurship, and then moved into um, working for marketing of new technology for Japanese blue chip companies, Sony, um, uh, a whole bunch of companies that had this awesome technology uh, that was best, best in class, but we were always trying to figure out what we could do to benefit the end user. And then from that, I jumped into video games with, with Shinra, where we were trying to take, again, similar idea, this amazing technology and how do we uh, address the market with it. And so that's kind of my background and how I kind of I got into the game industry. Cool, and now you are uh, Chief Operating Officer at Genvit. Uh, so um, maybe describe Gen Genvit a little bit. What do you, I mean, uh, you are, uh, you know, disrupting streaming, uh, like you said, um, mm -hmm. with the technology you built. Uh, and I'm personally pretty familiar with what you do, but uh, sure. not every listener might be. So, and I think you're doing some really cool stuff there. So it would be good if you can you. explain a little bit what, uh, what Genvit does and how you came up with the idea and why it matters so much to explore this field further. Yeah, so, you know, we've been around for about five years now, and with our mission being giving game developers access to the streaming ecosystem so that they could disrupt it, uh, we had to think of that from the ground up. And so what we've started and our, our roots and our DNA is, is, is an SDK. It's a pure technology that game developers can use in their existing game workflow to plug into whatever engine they're using and stream to the streaming platform of their choice, whether it's uh, Twitch, whether it's uh, Facebook, whether it's YouTube, et cetera. Uh, this, these are where the viewers are and where the audiences that, that developers want to access. My role as a chief operating officer is I am one of the talking heads, so um, both internally and externally talking about our vision, but also making sure that our, um, 
our offerings are are properly communicated and um, tailored to our audience, which is game developers. So uh, it, within within the company, business development reports to me, marketing reports to me, uh, communications reports to me, uh, and I make sure that uh, for all of those roles that report to me, we do some, the most important thing, which is get out of the way of our core technology people and make sure that um, we're not uh, writing checks that they can't cash and uh, making sure that we're uh, properly understood by by developers and what we offer and what, what we don't offer. Um, streaming and cloud gaming and, and esports and all of these topics are oft used, um, oft misused, and it's very easy to get um, the wrong impression of what various uh, offerings uh, enable. And we're very targeted uh, in a specific genre of creating opportunity for game developers and streaming. Uh, and uh, there are many things that we don't do because other people do it better. Uh, and we'd rather work alongside them than compete with them right. or those. Yeah. So, so that's in general, my, my role, uh, as a, as an SDK, what we do is we make it easy. When a game developer integrates us into their engine, we take the audio, the video, um, from their game and we send that to the, str the streaming platform of their choice. But we also let the game developer tag whatever data they want to expose to viewers so that that can be sent in real time uh, so that the viewer can get a, think of it as a viewer HUD that is catered directly to each viewer in a way that when you're clicking on it, when you're watching it, all of the data that is unique to you is completely coherent with the video behind it so that it's one seamless experience. So for example, if you're watching a, a competitive uh, eSport and you want to bring up the scoreboard and you're watching on Twitch, you click the scoreboard and you bring up the scoreboard, right? Usually if it's based on an API, that, that, that readout you're getting on the screen could be off by many seconds, right? It, synchronization is the key to, to satisfaction and key to under, really understanding what's going on. And so we make sure almost to the frame that when you're seeing um, the scoreboard on the, the game you're watching, it's actually exactly what's happening in game. Right. Also, you can bring up all kinds of crazy things like stats of players, as well as top-down maps, all these different kinds of things that are almost like an AR um, experience for the game world while you're watching it on your favorite streaming platforms. But what's, that's just kind of, go ahead. What's the level of interaction for, for players? I mean, obviously, scoreboards are one thing, uh, mm -hmm. but is there kind of a back channel into the into the game in a way that, uh, you know, they could even influence gameplay for people? Because that's the part that I find particularly interesting. Uh, so so give us some, some thoughts and some details, maybe what you guys are already doing or what you have in mind uh, for the future. So sure, that's the, that's the question we always get from game developers, which is, cool, I'm going to make, so, you know, Genfit's saying that you can make the viewing world interact with my game. Can the viewers on Twitch play the game? Can they interact with the game? And the answer is yes. Uh, but it's a nuanced answer because the question is, what you, do you as a game developer want to let viewers do? Right? So the first step that we always talk about is what I was just talking about, which is what we call the information layer. Right? Viewers need to feel like they understand what's going on before they have a... Uh, uh, comfort level to actually go and try to um, do something back into the, the simulation, right? So we always start the conversation there. Um, but where it can absolutely go and where we find the most opportunity is for viewers either individually, um, in subgroups, or as a um, cohort coming together and influencing what they're watching. And the reason we got into the technology game 
initially as opposed to the content making game is what is possible here is there's so many things that are possible here that we 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 wanted to present that design challenge to the community of game developers so that they could solve the things that we're not creating enough to 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 solve right so it can be everything from you know, Hunger Games type interactivity, where you're literally dropping in weapons or you're sponsoring specific players. Uh, that's kind of the the first idea. So you're watching a game. There's a player you like. You're seeing what they need, uh, and you you know you you either vote or you uh, pay uh, some sort of credit to drop in an item. That's one way of, of thinking about it. Where it gets a little bit more nuanced, and and I think actually more interesting for game developers, from balance as well as just general fun. Uh, as a game is when we start thinking of how viewer input can replace or augment elements of the non-player systems of the game. Things that are up until now NPC based, things that are scripted, things that are RNG based. These can be environmental, these can be bosses, these can be all these different kinds of things where viewers input can augment their behavior that it eventually will both properly represent what the viewer intent is, as well as create a more coherent experience for the player, right? So the, the, the point is always, if we're doing Hunger Games and a, and a million people are watching, are a million people throwing in health? And is the game ready for that, right? Uh, right. That, that's a significant design challenge. If it's so the, the first logical conclusion there is, well, obviously we probably won't let a million people throw in health, right? For both sides. So then you're, you're categorizing it lower into, okay, is it, how, how do we choose who throws in the health, right? And that becomes a very um, impressive kind of design challenge. Uh, another way of thinking about it is if we're, if we're thinking of systems that players up until now have pretty much studied to the, to the level of, of, of routine, Right, and this is you know scenario four B. You take left, I'll take right. You know we know that the mob's going to come this way, and and it, it it that becomes a challenge that developers are always trying to kind of play the tug and rope with, with with meta changing the meta all the time, right? Uh, and that I think is a significant um, contributor to crunch, right? When we went from games as a package to games as a service, by increasing the time people play games, we need to make sure that it's still novel and fun for them. Right, and there are kind of two um, variables at play there. One is novel content that the game developer is providing through DLC, through changes in the meta, through new content, and then the other thing is the the novelty that the the player community gives you, which is you know your, your their skill set, guilds, you name the, the social elements as well as competitive elements that are that are influenced but not necessarily dictated by the developer. What I'm trying to uh, say is there's a third element here, which is a non-player, non-developer um, source, which is the viewer, and how the developer wants to focus that that energy, whether it's towards controlling elements of the, the game or whether it's controlling elements of the player experience, is very much up to the game developer, right? And so, it, it, I don't know if it answers your question, but there are there are a whole bunch of things that are possible. So, um, so 
I can talk about some ex- examples of that if that yeah, helps some exam- you. Uh, some examples I think would be nice. I mean, I can imagine there's uh, for the example you just gave, uh, where you know mm-hmm. people know he one is taking the left corridor, the other is taking the right. This happens. I don't know. There's maybe I don't know uh, a, a turret or something there that, that's shooting. So I can imagine like uh, the audience being able to influence this. Like I don't know, they put another trap there, or they they kind of uh, you know somehow influence this. And for me, uh, I'd be curious like what does it mean from a technical point of view? So uh, mm-hmm. what's possible right now? what are challenges mm-hmm. for you maybe there's there's probably stuff like round trip times like there's an there's an action from the user and then you know it takes of course a while for the game to kind of feed that back into the live play experience so so that that would be interesting to get some some hands-on examples see where the challenges are and also give our, our listeners a feel for like how could this already be used and where is it probably going to be in you know a couple of years if technology evolves further sure if you don't mind i'd like to start with um a more um kind of conventional use of the tech that still has viewer interactivity sure. um, because it, it's a game that everyone is familiar with. And uh, while it, uh, which, which is what we did for the Counter-Strike Majors, um, uh, originally with uh, Face It, and then we've used the same technology for multiple top-tier broadcasters, ESL, Star Ladder, et cetera. Uh, and Counter-Strike is a game everyone knows. It has a large uh, current player base. It has an even larger former current player base, of which I am a member. Uh, and... The meta uh, ch- changes, but it's not a drastic change, right? There are new maps. There, there. The, 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 Valve is quite smart in, in obviously, a very successful game in, in, in kind of balancing that. But um, as a former player um, who who watches, uh, there are certain elements that I'm used to kind of really seeing uh, as a player, and it includes things like where are, where are the other players, what are the the strats that they're they're using, and if I'm just watching, I don't get to see that. So what did we do for that? We offered the ability on Twitch for viewers to completely kind of immerse themselves into the second-to-second action, whether it was being able to dive in to the player stats and see what specific um, uh, accuracy, how they were using utility, you know, stats that um, kind of more uh, adept viewers want to see. That that's that's one element that we did. But we also let viewers look into a kind of a top-down view of the, the map that showed where all the players were, what direction they were looking, what elevation they were, whether they were firing their weapon or not, what weapon they had equipped, which is not information anyone ever has. Usually you, on the HUD, you'll see the, the weapon with the highest value. Uh, and so you can see when they're, they're switching from knife to, to the Glock to, to a, uh, AK, right? You, you can see that in real time. So you get an idea of, of the character or the, the personality of the player you're watching as well. Because, you know, there, there's, there tends to be a little bit of, of that as well. They go to knife, even though it doesn't really change run speed anymore. But, the, you know, there, there, there are elements of, of that as well. Um, and what, so that was, you know, ga- uh, game slash player to viewer. What about viewer back in? We started experimenting with uh, with cheering here, uh, and cheering in this case again isn't the the level of because it's a competitive game. It isn't the level of interactivity or influence that we were just talking about with turrets, because Valve would kill us if we let <laughs> yeah, right. uh, pl- viewers literally do that for the majors. Um, but uh, what does this mean? So that mini map I was talking to you about before, right? That had all that data, that rich data. Um, and that was completely synchronized to the video, so it feels like you know you're pressing tab in in engine, but it's with much more data than you would ever get in the game because it's both sides, it's it's all all that data. We were able to make it so that you can click on each of the individual players, get their data, but also I have an option to cheer. And what happens when I cheer? Well, 
Counter-Strike doesn't let us let the players know in real time that they're being cheered for, because again, that could, the game wasn't designed around that principle, so we didn't start with that. But when I cheer, two things happen. First, I get instant feedback, because the, the location on the, uh, the, the avatar, the representation of where that player is, starts glowing, and then starts going on fire, the more people cheer for it. And then where it gets kind of crazy is if, if hundreds of thousands of people are cheering, it starts hitting logarithmic exponential um, effects that make sure that everyone knows that this player is going crazy. And also the player's uh, name in, in the, the player HUD that you see on the left-hand right-hand side, that starts going on fire, right? Uh, and it feels native to the screen. So the, th the thing you should know is all the other viewers see that, but more importantly, the output of that cheering is also going back to the broadcast booth. And the broadcast booth, in this case, the streamer, right, sees who is being cheered for in real time, more or less is seeing why, because we're attributing that to data in game, what is happening in engine so that they can start creating rich new narrative around what the state in, you know, in digital stadium experiences, right? And that creates new opportunity to, to be engaged with the broadcast. Um, and, and that's just, where we start off with a competitive game. So we take that and we call it the fan favorite um, experience, right? It's not necessarily MVP because usually MVP is literally based on in-game stats, right? But this is um, a way for the viewer to actually make a difference in the player's life because they're fan favorite, right? Um, and they're announced right. for that. And depending on the competition, that can be a sponsored thing or a prize thing. Uh, and it's also more visceral and more real time than the chat or doing something on, on Twitter, or doing something around the stream. It's, it's literally a part of the stream, right? And, and it's, it's kind of a live version of what I know from Formula E. I don't know if you follow that, but there they have like the fan boost, which is like where you uh, vote on social media prior to the race. But uh, this is now, you know, imagine this live. You know, people are uh, are giving an advantage in that particular case. Uh, it's not a, not only cheering, but it's giving an advantage to people for like a couple of seconds, like an additional mm -hmm. boost. Uh, so how about something like that? Um, so where you yes. actually have an influence on on what's happening in the game. Absolutely. Besides the cheering. Cheering is cool, you know, don't get me wrong, but yeah, cheering course, we start with cheering because influence. we start with cheering because cheering is a thing that people can can kind of understand today uh and it's it's uh, almost a quick win in a way another example i'll talk about is uh i believe it was 2019 um we were at tokyo game show with a game called space sweeper and space sweeper was actually originally a cloud game that was part of the shinra collective um and we were at a booth for NTT Docomo, which is a large telco provider, one of the largest in the world, the, the, the main one in Japan. And we were showing off 5G. And, and, and the, the event of the game here is a top-down twin-stick shooter with very advanced crafting, but, you know, 2D graphics, a very Japanese aesthetic. And in this case, it was originally MMO, um, but since the cloud gaming project that it was about was no longer... Uh, uh, in existence, uh, it was ported to a local multiplayer game with um, with four four players on it. Uh, and originally, the reason why is there was so much going on, so much kind of bullet hell particles going on that you could never synchronize that across multiple clients on 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 uh, server client um, tech technology. So we have these four players who are put into this world, and there are just so many aliens, and their jobs is to sweep the planet. Right and to go and terraform it and eventually, uh, you know, kill the massive alien bosses and, and craft um, 
new weapons and new technology uh, and, and create fortresses, etc. It's a very difficult game, uh, but very fun game. And what we had and what NTT really wanted to show is, well, again, they asked the same question you had, which is what can viewers do that's interesting? It's not just about clicking on the player and finding out the crafting tree and seeing what their inventory is. That's fine, but that ensuring for them isn't, isn't enough here. So what the developer came up with and his name is Kengo Nakajima. He's one of the uh, luminaries, uh, especially of backend technology in, in Japan. He came up with the idea of the, I believe his term was viewer trolling mechanism. But uh, the, the idea was, so when, when any of the four players killed uh, a, an alien in, in the game, that alien um, didn't drop anything in the game necessarily, usually except it unless it was a special kind of alien. But for the viewers who are watching, they would drop something. So only, only in the viewer view, where that player killed that specific um, uh, pixel, where, where the alien you know, uh, was demised, there would be a, uh, uh, what, what they called an anger point. So this swirling kind of point thing that the players couldn't see, the players couldn't collect, but the viewers could collect them. And the players are running around trying to not die from all the bullets. The viewers, instead of trying to understand the, the second to second, frame to frame uh, goings on, all they would need to know is, oh, click the anger point, click, click that little swirling thing. And sometimes the really big aliens would have really big uh, uh, swirling things and it looks like a crazy hurricane going on and the viewers kind of mouse over it. If they mouse over it, they're cleaning it up and they're collecting points. And those points could be used to access a viewer-only inventory and unlock specific items. So say you're a player, you're running around, you need a fuel cell to, to power your laser. Usually you'd have to mine a bunch of things, craft a, a, a generator, and then find a source of fuel for the generator. Uh, or a viewer could just send you the fuel cell. Uh, and that's exactly what viewers did. Uh, viewers, uh, and how would you do that? You would, you know, you would unlock the item. It would be in your individual viewer inventory. You'd click on the viewer inventory, and just like you would in an RTS, you would actually go and click on the pixel on Twitch where you wanted that dropped, and then a dropship would come and put it down. Now this is all happening where viewers are watching in real time, and there's obviously a latency here, right? Um, because I'm watching on Twitch. So there's, and you asked the question earlier, how does yeah. roundship time work with this? Uh, and there were a whole bunch of really interesting um, kind of novelties that, that Nakajima-san created. But the dropship would spawn at the, um, the closest. Uh, we had these dropship drop spawn sites everywhere. And the important thing was to say the ETA for the dropship to come, right? And so it, even if I'm watching something with five seconds latency, 10 seconds latency, as a viewer, I would get the instant feedback that, you know, I've clicked on this, this uh, patch of mud coming in 10 seconds, right? Now I have the countdown. Countdowns are great, but they're not fun. So what we'd show instantly is the vector with which the, the dropship was coming, mm -hmm. as well as the, not just time, but how far away is it? It's 52 meters, 48 meters, right? So again, it starts feeling more like a game. And then the players start seeing it. And because viewers could also spawn enemies, the view, the, the, you had this kind of 
tug of war of whether the player trusted the viewer or not, because the the player could actually attack and kill the dropship before it dropped anything. Because if it's creating this, uh, if it's about to spawn this spider, um, you know the 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 player didn't necessarily want to do that. Uh, but this was Japan. Uh, this is for Tokyo Game Show, and as luck would have it, most of the viewers were in a cooperative mood, collaborative mood, than in antagonistic mood. So we took what would usually take about four to five hours and four um, professional kind of uh, game players cleared it in about 45 minutes because they had the ability for the viewers to come and send them items in real time. So this is, I think, the first time you've seen this real-time viewer-player dynamic where we're actually um, in a group clearing a very challenging game um, uh, loop together. And it was the, the game developer, Nakajima-san himself, thought it would, even with the viewers, it would take about an hour and a half. And it took 45 minutes. Uh, and so that's just one example. And, and uh, where, again, you have viewer-only dynamics. Again, players don't see it. Viewers are not having to follow the second-to-second crafting tree or really understand the complexity of the game, which is quite complex. All they need to know is what is the thing that's required of me, but also I always have the choice of not listening and something something completely different, as well as sending something that, you know, and we clearly marked what the, the evil items were. The, items, the evil items were a little bit more expensive, uh, so you'd, you'd have to spend a little bit more time clearing up the AP to, to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's kind of how that worked. So that's just one example, and I have many others. But um, what was novel about that was the idea that viewers were part of the game without having to understand the totality of the game, and that players were able to really see viewers as an enabling force in the game. So that's we literally the, that's had the part these players. I find so fascinating about this. I mean, uh, this example alone, and I can think of like uh, you know uh, some others uh, instantly that were, would make a lot of sense. So from a, from a technical point of view, um, everything that you were describing about drawing the vector and uh, mm -hmm. like kind of having a countdown or the meters counting down, that is actually provided by your technology. So it's kind of an overlay, uh, I guess, for the viewer, um, so that with that you reduce the perceived latency for uh, the viewer uh, compared to you know having to wait for like, a couple of seconds until the game realizes something something's actually happening right absolutely so you know some of this is up uh, using um, the platform um, side functions that twitch provides so this was on twitch this is a specific example and it was using uh, twitch extensions right and twitch extensions if for those of you not familiar there are various uh, um, panels and, and uh, dashboards and overlay capabilities that Twitch provides game developers or, you know, just general developers to allow for um, individual experiences on, on a Twitch um, stream. And so what we did with that is we took that the Twitch um, extensions wrapper and we made it so that what you're seeing in that overlay is contextually connected to the game, right? So what we're doing is we're sending video and data real time from the game and we're sending the metadata of where those AP are, where those um, killed enemies' um, pixels are. And the camera is moving in real time, right? So as the, the players are running around, it's not like a, a static top-down um, map. It's kind of really vast uh, map. Uh, and they're running around. And so as the camera is changing, the position of the AP in your overlay are matched with how you would expect it to be if you were just in the game. Right. Right. So, you know, it's it's attached to this tree. The tree moves because the camera moves. It's attached to the tree. Right. And so, you know, 
kind of um, in, intuitively where you, what you should be doing. And so as far as the viewer is concerned, there is no separation between the viewer experience and the player experience. It's one experience that's been created and delivered to the viewer, and that's been um, you know, authored by the game developer for the viewer. And that's exactly the kind of experiences we've been trying to, to, to enable. And what makes that interesting is it's actually traditional game development thinking that's been redirected at a non-traditional audience. What do I mean by this? Anyone who's in basic multiplayer game world understands that it's very difficult to create a game that everyone's seeing the same thing. You know, so you and I are playing Fortnite, you're playing, you and I are playing any multiplayer game. You know, we have pretty much local clients and they're sending multiplayer data back to the server and then synchronizing it and making sure that we're not doing anything weird um, where we're, we're not cheating or we're not saying we're somewhere else and, yeah. and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's synchronizing that and sending that back out. And there, obviously there are many different ways of doing it. There's deterministic, there's, there's peer-based, there's all kinds of stuff where there's no server involved. But the important thing here is we have a technical hurdle, which is we're not all in the same place playing on the same machine. Therefore, there's going to be latency. There's going to be some sort of difference between what you're experiencing and what I'm experiencing. But the game developer's job is to make th that feel as non-existent as possible, right? It's smoke and mirrors, right? So, you know, you and I are in different networks, you and I are in different machines, but we're having the shared experience and it, we, sh we shouldn't be focused on that latency. So whenever latency is felt by the player, it's, oh, this is no longer fun, right? So the ex why is that? Because by virtue of having a local client, I'm able to do things instantly and get instant feedback, right? I'm able to change, I'm able to fire. I'm not waiting for the server to come back to me and say, your fire has been registered. Like really do the thing locally and the result of that goes back to the, the server and gets propagated out, right? So I have a very tight feedback loop locally. And then the result of that is sent to the server and then that, that comes back and it's this loop that keeps going. Right. We've taken the same idea and put that to viewer. And so let's think about what the Space Reaper experience would have been without the, that overlay with the instant feedback and you know telling you when the ship is coming. It would have been me doing what? Putting something in chat, right? Saying, you know, spawn enemy. If there was a bot in the chat, it would say, Lars, your, your spawn enemy has been uh, accepted. Right, and then you, if you have a million people doing that in chat, then you have a million people <laughs> spam, you know, spamming a bunch of things. You don't, you have no idea what, if your input has been accepted. So it's the equivalent of you know pressing on your mouse button to fire, and you don't know if it's firing because it takes fifteen seconds or whatever to to see it. Now, better better yet, you know, get the feedback from your mouse. Right, so that's one thing. Um, but then we're sending that back to the server, and we're seeing it, and then. I didn't even mention this in the video when the dropship comes, it has your name on it as a viewer on, on who sent that specific dropship. So you, you see yourself as part of the action right there, right in the video as part of it. So there's always going to be smoke and mirrors, whether it's cloud gaming, whether it's a local multi um, local client multiplayer or what, or whether it's viewer interactivity that takes into, um, it, can, it takes for granted latency and it's about how we deal with latency and how we create an awesome experience in spite of latency um, that that it, that plans for non 
ideal solution, uh, ideal conditions or environment. So I, I hope that makes sense. But but there but by having access to a local client that is on top of the video that's speaking to the global um, game, which is in the video, you get to have the benefits of a tight local feedback loop with the understanding that 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 is speaking to the game and vice versa. So a good way of thinking about it is there are these two games. There's the game that's represented by the video, and then there's the game that's represented by the, the overlay. And they're talking to each other, and they're super coherent with each other. And as far as you as a, a viewer are concerned, it's one continuous thing. Right? If the player ever starts thinking about in a, in a multiplayer game, the, the difference between the server and the, the client uh, reality, then it's game-breaking, right? The only thing about one thing, which is the experience they have in front of them, they don't care about the different layers and the different assets in the game. It's just one. They don't care what's not being rendered because of occlusion. It's just one um, viewport for them, and they're just enjoying it as is. And the exact same thing is possible with Vue. So is that mostly on Twitch, or what kind of platforms uh, uh, do you see this, uh, this technology on? Genvid is all about providing these experiences on whatever platform, first of all, wants to enable it, as well as the developer wants to be on. So we see ourselves uh, not um, dissimilar to what game engines were for, for being able to let um, game developers build for separate runtime environments, right? So, you know, what brought Unity to prominence was eight different, uh, eight million different shades of Android, right? And as if I'm coming up as a, as a um, developer for, for smartphone games, I don't want to necessarily make a uh, internal build for each kind of Android. I just, build, you know, I let Unity handle that, right? And so our vision is to be where the game developers want to be. And so we've created our technology so that it's very easy to, be implemented on other people's platforms. So Twitch is one example of that uh, that we have. Uh, Facebook is another recent example uh, that we uh, showcased Rival Peak, which went from December of last year to March of this year, this month, um, where we had a similar kind of experience. I can talk a little bit more about that, but that I mean, we, we officially support the Facebook platform. And we also have ability for um, people who wanna use the YouTube uh, video player to be able to use that as well. Uh, currently, YouTube doesn't have a, an extensions like program on YouTube.com itself. So if you want to do that, you need to use YouTube's video player that they offer for an embed in your own website. But that same level of interactivity and synchronization does exist for the YouTube player. And our entire um, uh, stack is built to really quickly onboard new um, video players, meaning new streaming platforms. So uh, we are invested in by uh, Huya in China. Uh, who is one of the biggest you know, streaming platforms in the world. They, they rival Twitch uh, just in China alone in terms of uh, viewership. They're part of the Tencent family. Uh, and you know, part of that discussion has always been how quickly can we get and support new streaming platforms. And one of the things they liked about Genvid was that we were built from the ground up specifically for that. No, and that's definitely really cool to hear because I think uh, you know most of the developers uh, these days, if they are to use a technology like this, they want to make sure they can actually be uh, you know platform compatible wherever possible. So they want to make sure that uh, you know they have uh, as big of an audience as, as possible. And while Twitch here in the West, I guess, is, is probably the um, biggest and most important platform, I think it's good that you build it that way and that can be uh, you know pretty much platform agnostic. A hundred percent. I think one of the key drivers in the last two three years of, of gaming has been crossplay. Yeah. Right. And it, it, what it allows for and, and platforms that up until now haven't been the most platforms up until now have been very much, you know, I'm talking about traditional game platforms. Let's talk about exclusivity. Right. And what you're seeing here 
Uh, the trend is, I think, a little bit of power going to game developers, especially for the, the more successful IP, where technology allows for them to no longer be completely beholden to the back end of one platform, right? So the reason up until now it was only matchmaking on one, um, you know, PlayStation or Xbox was usually the, the publisher would give you that, and then they're not going to go out of their way to do matchmaking on uh, with, with with the other platforms. But as we have more third party. Um, uh, resources and the games themselves become more global in their accessibility. So what I mean by this is um, up until, you know, keyboard mouse controller used to be the biggest thing, right? Like, can they play together? And is keyboard mouse just cheating at that point, right? Uh, you know, Fortnite shows that you can have that and mobile. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that's what I want to say. With, I mean, with, mobile on Fortnite is just massive and still can, you know, you can still see that it's competitive, so... 100%. And so what they're showing is if, if the game is created the right way, you can be on multiple um, platforms through cross-play and, and all of them are, are native and, and and can really play well with each other. And so we took a lot of inspiration from that. The exact same thing should be true for streaming, right? So as a game developer, and why is this important? Because game developers need to know that there's a market there so that they can uh, put the right um, level of focus and resources towards it, right? And so why isn't GenVid a Twitch competitor? Why? Why haven't we seen? Have, why have we seen very few, very successful Twitch competitors, especially none that are developer focused to like you know like come make games for viewers to interact with? Because the first question they would get from any game developer is, how many viewers do you have today, and why do I spend a second talking to you as opposed to spending that exact same second making sure my player experience isn't amazing, right? And so it's all about I think letting everyone win, which is Twitch. YouTube, Facebook benefit because they have, uh, by, by enabling these kind of features for game developers, they have higher engagement, they have more interactivity, they have all the things that they're, they're always wanting. And developers also benefit because they have the ability to reach the audience where they are today and make that audience not just their, their fans' audience, but their audience directly. Yeah, right, and, and I agree. Developer. In general, it's a. I think it's a tendency we see more and more. That's about the, about uh, democratizing players more. That uh, you know they they have more um, possibilities now, and it doesn't matter too much on which platforms they're on. So I, I think it really fits in in that uh, in that regard. So what's the next step um, that you see for that? I mean, obviously you can take this many places. You already mentioned Rival Peak um, uh, that you have running on Facebook, where you kind of eliminated the player out of the equation, uh, I guess, in that case. Or I, I wouldn't say eliminate. You, you made an AI or multiple AIs, the players. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, the, uh, about that and then go into, you know, what you think is kind of the next step in that regard to audience interaction with, like, uh, with the metaverse or with, like, uh, what you, I think, uh, uh, used once in a, in a call that we had about, you know, massive interactive life events, how, how that all plays together. Sure. And I uh, thank you for the question. You know, Genvid was created... Um, by a bunch of people from the cloud gaming space who are trying to make new games that can only be done by the cloud. And wh what would that mean? Um, you know, amongst our various um, unreleased titles at, at, uh, Square, at uh, Shinra were these games that we, we, we announced around them, so I can talk about them, but, but we never actually showed gameplay of it, um, were these games that took specific design elements that could only be done by the cloud and then made a game around it. So one was AI, another one was real world destruction, another one was was weather and like real particle level, you know, 
actual weather systems kind of playing with each other. And some of, uh, and we had examples where they kind of all came in together. And so one the, the AI one I'll talk, talk about really quickly here because it, it's kind of the DNA of Rival Peak. Um, there was a project where we wanted to see what evolution over time would look like if the elements of behavior of the of the animals were passed down through genetics uh, and we actually you know were able to see over eons how the world would would evolve so imagine an ant farm where it's not just ants it's all these different kinds of animals and they're able to breed with with higher and le lower levels of success and you would start over time start seeing mutation and you'd start seeing progeny that would have the attributes of their ancestors kind of commingled. So you, towards the the end of things, you'd start seeing these crazy mutant spider pig bears, right? And and uh, but they would be taken down very quickly by snake rats, who were smaller but venomous, who could quickly go into them, right? And so we had to balance it not becoming a nightmare engine but um <laughs> it, it, it worked really well and we uh, it was quite fun but uh the the thing here was no one dictated the outcome this is an ai driven experience and, it, and the ai was you know manifested in the the behavioral com uh, components of both environmental as well as um genetic uh if you want to call it that uh, background but the the thing is we were watching right and we would watch for, for, for hours and and what 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 did a player do in this case they would throw in food to see how the the um, animals would react to it whether they'd eat it whether they die from it whether what what would happen from it and we started with a very with a three body problem with um, carrots uh, um, rabbits and foxes and and we kind of went from there and so you know as as we started with equilibrium of all three. The, the rabbits ate the carrots. The carrots went down. Uh, more rabbits came. Foxes started eating the rabbits. Uh, more foxes came, but then there weren't enough rabbits to, to do it. And, 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 and So that's the macro level of seeing how these three things came together. But the micro of seeing the specific rabbit, you know, trying to like, over time, there were all kinds of really cool um, emergent uh, things that were fun to watch. Fast forward. Uh, now we're GenVid. 2017, I believe, we, we meet a uh, development studio called Pipeworks. And, and these are an X found it's a found, X Foundation 9 studio. Uh, they've recently uh, merged with Sumo. Um, they're, they're based in Pacific Northwest in Eugene, Oregon. And it's a group of, you know, just veteran game developers. And they um, had a project where they created this AI uh, system, but it wasn't animals, it was people. Uh, and it was originally for use in a, in a you know a more traditional game, but they saw the AI kind of walking around, and they gave them not quite necessarily free will, but the ability to have their own decision trees and, and kind of decide what they would do in the environment. And they had the same experience we had, which was they were watching the AI. AI. They they were just you know they would turn it on, um, leave it on in the the lunchroom, um, and they, you know people would come back and say, oh, "Where's Phil? You know, is Phil alive? I feel like kids." Oh, the kid, you know, this one's like Phil, that one's not really like Phil. And so they would kind of see what was going on with it. And they got the drive to, to they, well, from their own experience, they, they saw that it's fun to watch this, this system just by itself. And, and um, they, they experimented with trying to figure out how they could uh, do 
uh, a stream of it, but it wasn't interesting because there was no idea of an overlay. It was just like, you know, why, why am I watching this if I don't know the context of it? And they, 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 they tried many things and they, they, they kind of put that on the shelf uh, several years before they met us. And then we showed them a couple of demos that we showed them Counter-Strike and they went, oh, would it be possible for me to like, you know, click and find out more about their background or yeah. Oh, is it possible to like kind of have multiple cameras into it so I can kind of like switch back and forward? Yeah, we can do all those things. And so we created a, a prototype with them in partnership that we showed at GDC in I think 2018 called Project Delusis, which was literally 10 characters on Twitch. You could see the map and, and drop in items and the AI would re react to it. There was no game here. Um, there was no win state, there was no lose state. It was just watching. Um, but it wasn't just watching because I could be part of the action depending on how I influence what got dropped into the drop sites on this island. We showed that around a lot and we got a lot of interest from, from various parties, but the place that really um, was the most, um, at the end of the day, the, the place that I think was the most energized to, 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 to move forward with it um, right away was Facebook. And Facebook I, um, you know, is, has an extremely successful uh, instant game um, uh, you know, function that already has lots of players on it, and you know everyone knows that. And they have a very big and thriving watch community, both in games and external to games, uh, live and, and VOD. And they saw the ability to kind of like merge these two and create a transcendent experience um, using the the kind of spark that was Project Elusis, and that became what um, we we released last year as Rifle Peak. And so just for, for listeners who, who didn't hear what Rival Peak is, I'll speak about it very quickly. It was a 12 and eventually 13 week massively multiplayer choose our own adventure story that was originally positioned as a AI contestant reality television show where we have 12 contestants from around the world who all have their own unique AI, unique background, um, and and uh, motivation for why they're on the show, and it's to collect this you know ten million dollars in 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 lore, and do something. So we had a um, a Ethiopian uh, naturalist who wanted to um, name Dave Dawid. It was Ethiopian name, but he liked to be called Dave because he wanted to appeal himself to a wide audience uh, in the West. Uh, and and uh, he wanted to uh, bring his uh, show from the African continent to the world, and he wanted to use it that. We had a transgender streamer named Winter who wanted to create her own uh, kind of streaming platform. Uh, and there were all these different uh, really cool um, uh, AI, and, and the, the backstory for these were written by uh, DJ2 Entertainment, who uh, are comprised of uh, ex-Telltale leadership, the, the, the showrunners for Tales from Borderland and, and uh, the Walking Dead uh, Telltale games. Um, and also the same creative behind the, the Sonic movie, as well as the upcoming Netflix uh, Laura Croft uh, Tomb Raider show that's coming, right? And so these are people who are uh, very adept in kind of both interactive and linear game-related narrative. And it starts as you know, this rally television show where everyone's put on this um, rival peak, which is a, a mountain, and they have to get to the, to the end of the mountain. It's like Survivor, whoever wins, you know, survives at the end wins. But it's about a much a reality television, reality television show is Jurassic Park is a nature documentary. Uh, <laughs> which right? it's not. <laughs> which it's not, really, right, in any way. Uh, just, you know. Um, and so 
as the weeks go on, we, we see that everything isn't what it seems. And how do we see that? There are a couple of ways. Uh, I, I've kind of buried the lead, which is the viewer dictates the outcome. The viewer dictates who wins Rival Peak, uh, and the viewer dictates how they win. And, and But it wasn't through just, you know, clicking in a place and, and throwing in an item, which we did with Project Eleusis, its, its progenitor. It was a little bit more nuanced. Facebook wanted something that was native to the platform, and Facebook is a a platform where people um, center a lot of their activity, but it's not necessarily where you spend two, three hours in a row straight, right? Like you have your life, um, when, when you want to interface with people or news or you know specific content, you go to Facebook and then you go back to your life, right? It's not your traditional kind of gaming, uh, I'm gonna go play for three hours. Uh, even instant games are instant, right? Instant in, yeah. you get your play, you play for as much as you want, and then you you, you, you come back. And so that it, it fits within your lifestyle. And so they wanted something while, you know, they wanted to challenge what it mean, what it meant to be a viewing experience. They also wanted something that was that was um, co coherent with that. And so the idea is viewers, when they when they watch Rival Peak, which they can watch on any device that runs Facebook, um, you would be able to jump in really quickly, no install, and just watch any of the characters you want. And if you if there's a character that you specifically like, you could help them. You would help them just by watching. Every minute you watched a contestant in Rival Peak, you were helping build up their score. And why does score matter? Because at the end of every week, the contestant with least amount of score got voted off the mountain. But there was more you could do. You could see what the contestants were doing. You could read their storyline which again was written by, um, by DG2 Entertainment. And Pipeworks made an amazing, Pipeworks the developer, made an amazing design, which was viewers could help the contestants interact with the world they were going. So as part of, we gave the, the, the contestants various challenges. They have to build a tent. They have to go you know, uh, solve these puzzles. They have to do all these in-world things. And without the players, they, I would just do it, right? They're doing it whether or not you're there. But if you're there, you can make it go faster, or you can make it so that this person discovers uh, the the uh, the hidden item and not uh, that contestant, right? So, so we literally had an emergent storyline because of that. And what that turned into was, you know, you can almost think of it as MMO Bandersnatch, right? Like it's there is a narrative component to it, but that narrative component is not predestined. Right? We created this, this branching tree where we kind of know what's going on, but we don't know how we're going to get there. And we can't until the, the viewer input is taken into consideration. There's one more very important dimension, which is, well, what if you're not watching for a week? Or what if you get busy or you haven't watched for a few weeks? Uh, and how do you catch up? And then, you know, if it's just AI, you know, as interesting as AI may be to me or to Pipeworks or people in the game uh, industry, you know, if we want to make this something that your more casual viewer, not player, wants to interact with, how do we do that? And, and the idea there was something that, you know, popular shows have, which is the wrap-up show, right? So after The Walking Dead, you see The Talking Dead. After, you know, there are all right. these shows that uh, let you engage with it or catch up or feel that you're part of it without having to spend all the time necessarily watching or playing or what have you. And we called that... We had that and we call it Rival Speak. And uh, for Rival Speak, we needed uh, a, a personality that really embodied 
um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the culture that we were trying to, to uh, cater the, the, the experience to, who also himself or herself had a lot of experience with streaming and, 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 and you know, creating um, those experiences. And we were very fortunate to uh, get Will Wheaton to, to head the, the, the Rival Speak show. And he played himself, or at least a colored, a, a, um, a dark, uh, a dystopian version of himself as uh, the, uh, and, and it was absolutely uh, amazing. And uh, so we, there's this weekly show called Rival Speak that um, uh, streamed every Wednesday, which would take into account all the things that happened. What are the highlights of what happened this week? Uh, and, and bring personality to the experience. So you could see that, you know, you're, you're affecting a winter made it to the show. And then we on that show, we did things that we couldn't do in a 24 seven live simulation, which is have fully rigged voice acted uh, uh, character with, you know, sp speaking to, to Will in real time that would, you know, create um, another dimension to it. And additionally, we were able to even bring more lore. So, you know, there's only so much that we can assure that everyone sees in Rival Peak because you need to kind of be there at the right time or go and read this dialogue, right? And it can be lossy there. And that's fine if you're trying to create like a treasure hunt. But if you want to have a base level of, sure, that's fine, but I want to make sure everyone is kind of following me along in the journey. Um, we, we needed to make sure that we were planting specific plot points in a more global uh, setting, and that's what we did at Rival Speak. And so there were specific lore uh, and specific characters that were introduced on that really tight, really well-produced 22-minute weekly show that was dictated in many ways by what was happening in, 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 in the uh, Rival Peak simulation, but they're interplaying with each other. So um, all of this together is what we kind of constitute as a mile, this massively interactive live event. It's not a television show. It's not a game. It's not an ARG. It's, it's everything together creating this um, gestalt of entertainment where, but all of the interactivity is with the medium. And, but what do I mean by this? With more traditional linear media, like Game of Thrones or, or um, Stranger, like all, all of those, how am I interacting with it as a fan? I'm watching it. I'm talking about it to my friends, my family. I'm going to Reddit and, and going into conspiracy theory about what's gonna happen next season. Maybe I'm playing a licensed game of it that, you know, I think maybe is showing more lore. But these are all different touch points that are um, up to, I have to go seek it out myself. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, some of it's very community driven, some of it's very individual driven, whether or not I have friends or people around me that I, I talk to. Um, and it's kind of around the content as opposed to part of the content. And we, what we wanted to do is expand it, that core content out so that everyone, you know, uh, on Facebook in this case uh, for the Rival Peak universe could interact with it kind of natively. Like, so whether you're watching Rival Speak, whether you're talking, whether you're commenting on it, whether you're um, in, in the app and you're interacting with it or you're chatting about it with, with the Arconcier streamers or you're actually going to each of the 12 contestant pages on Facebook and seeing their daily multiple updates, which they're doing in character with screenshots of what happened, you're able to interface with it in, in a new and, and, and kind of fun way, 
right? And so that's what we did. Uh, it ended just a couple of weeks ago. And we were really astounded by the kind of um, the, the results we're getting. And we'll be re releasing a little bit more about it. But, um, you know, we, Facebook is a global platform with amazing reach. And, you know, we were able to have people from India to Brazil to uh, the, the US to Mexico, Philippines, you name it. Um, what I just mentioned are the top five countries of viewership for Rival Peak. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and, 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 you know, name a game that, or, or, or a show or, or that has that in its first kind of season, that level of, of global um, outreach. And, and I, I, any show you name, I'll be very happy to be lined up with, right? And so um, we had, uh, hundreds of millions uh, consumed both on in the app and in, in um, the, the Facebook kind of um, uh, meta ecosystem around the the, the title. And uh, we had a lot of fun playing, uh, building and playing and watching it. And, um, and what my favorite feature of it that, you know, I don't think anyone else necessarily cares about is we had unique soundtracks for each of the 12 contestants. And so I would just leave on a contestant's stream while I was working because they would have about an eight hour looping, really awesome customized soundtrack. That was that character's selection for what they're listening to. So if, if I, if I wanted to listen to Brazilian, what, what you know, this Brazilian uh, former reality television show named La Portia would be listening to, I could listen to it and I could do my work or I could like, you know, do chill out after, <laughs> after a meeting and listen to it in real time. And it's this kind of like, you know, um, quick ability to enjoy that medium, enjoy that, that, that content the way I want to, um, that we wanted to, to enable. Right. And that, I mean, yeah, I'm very excited because it's the first at scale example of that, uh, to the widest audience in the world, which is, you know, Facebook users. So did you support the different AI characters, uh, in the world, uh, the same way, or did you have favorites? I had favorites. <laughs> And my favorites changed over time. Obviously, I'm a super user, right? I mean, in, in terms of I love this thing that that, that Pipeworks and, and DJ2 Entertainment made um, that we supported from the, the server and, and the, you know some of the development of it. But the story, the core lore and the implementation of in the simulation was all those developers, right? Um, and so I enjoy I started um, with who was in the beginning I liked winter a lot because I liked I loved her music I loved her storyline and I would spend hours as watching um, as the season progressed we and I, I wrote an article about this in Gama Sutra about kind of the live operations learning uh, we got a lot of feedback in terms of people wanted more um, things to do uh, and more ways to, to, to interact with the, the, the experience so we, we entered achievements. And so very quickly, oh, by the way, uh, I'm, I'm lying because before I, I was my, my one of the, the characters was was named Karen and she was a Karen um, and she believed in the, the government conspiracy and UFOs and Bigfoot and all the crazy things. And she wanted to build a, with her winnings a, a, a conservative news network that would tell the truth to the people uh, about what was really going on. And uh, but she was also a working mother of like four who, you know, was an engineer and like, you know, very smart. Uh, and she had amazingly funny dialogue. So I would um, kind of go back and forth between Karen 
and uh, and Winter. But the the thing that made me stop watching Karen was she was voted off the first week. I can't imagine why she was <laughs> not the most popular to to make that cut. Um, but so quickly we had to I had to change and I, I went to a different one. Um, but Winter's music and, and and was much better. And you know her her relationship with the other characters as the story went on went well. And so I mentioned achievements and the reason. Uh, you know, late in the season, we we, inter- uh, we we introduced achievements, and it turned into how many. You know, one of the achievements was how many people have you contributed more than a million points to, and up until then, I had like six million points in one and four million in another. Uh, I probably have one of the highest scores <laughs> in within Rival Peak, but I, but I started like. Uh, a lot of the people I liked were voted off because apparently, you know, one super user isn't enough to, to change to change that. Uh, even though I was on Facebook telling all my friends to 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 you know ship winter, but um, maybe they didn't, you know. Maybe, maybe they didn't. Who knows? Maybe maybe maybe, maybe you know. <laughs> maybe I have an amazing influence and they didn't watch because I told them to. Yeah. Um, but uh, I started watching all of them, and and uh, I have right now over a million points in all of the characters. And uh, I was able, you know, but I did that late season and I, and I had to go back and start reading through all the dialogues to see who they were. And we also introduced recaps, daily recaps, so you could kind of see what happened from their vantage each day. Uh, and that really let me do that. So um, in the beginning, I think we were trying to make this both casual and complex where you'd have to really like log in to see all the clues and see the what's inside the mystery box and understand, you know, um, and then we realized that we needed to make it a little bit more accessible. And so we did that. And I think um, our our viewership kind of grew from that uh, and our, our engagement also grew from that as well. And I personally um, was surprised by my interest in characters that I initially didn't like because of the story, right? And because they grow, because obviously we had amazing writers behind it uh, who were much smarter than me and created characters that, you know, um, develop and mature over time and they have right. their own arc. And, and I was able to, to enjoy that. So when you take Rival Peak and what you learned from that, and I, I know you said you're going to probably you know, publish some more results about it or write some more about it, but when you take what you know right now, what you've seen um, through this um, you know, 12-week or 13-week period, and if you then think about you know, game development and where we are today and uh, you know, that typical cadence of uh, creating new games every two to three years and, uh, you know, and always having to come up with something new, and then you, on the other hand, you have this you know, AI-driven reality show that a lot of people interact with. So where do you see the connection? What did you learn from Rival Peak, and how do you think it can be applied to the future of game development? That's what I would kind of, what I want to use as kind of a, a wrapper to this to this topic in general, because I think this is really interesting to see, you know, how this could be applied and uh, what it means for game developers. One of the things I think we learned from Rival Peak is bringing the idea of, of user-informed decision making to that we take for granted in games as a service, but to, if you want to call linear media or non-linear media, whatever, you know, um, if you're filming a show, you're not really taking in viewer input because that can kind of skew your your vision, right? You're like, viewers are often watching because they want artist intent. And, you know, if, if a... George R. R. Martin changes his next book because people already found out what the thing is, you know, then it's a different, he's very much against that idea because, you know, they're, they're, they're reading or they're watching for his vision, not necessarily their vision. Rival Peak showed us that while that we should definitely have that um, kind of 
core IP narrative that people are tuning in for, we can add elements of the experience around it that viewers are asking for that give them more exposure to the the world that they're watching. And so we added mid-season from that some some maps, for example. People weren't able to, you know, this is massive mountain. Uh, the, the the characters are walking around. Where are they walking around? Where is this, you know, uh, where is this in relation to that? Are, uh, how big is this place? We added maps in there so people could see that so that they weren't having to kind of piece it together and, and do their own hand-drawn stuff on on Photoshop and Illustrator. So that, that was one thing. But we also added um, a, more game-like elements to it, um, being able to play you know, uh, very simple memory games, you know, uh, uh, literally memory, you know, um, two cards and you, you have two pictures and you add that together. Um, and uh, match three games, which everyone's really familiar with. And a lot, over 90% of our viewership was on mobile. So that's, it was a experience that they, they were accustomed to. And additionally, we were able to take those very simple kind of game mechanics and put them together in social dynamics. So we created something in the last two weeks that that obviously is is more of an experiment than anything else called Tribute. And Tribute allowed for viewers to spawn something in world, whether it was a surprise, which could be like anything from animals to to ghosts, all kinds of crazy stuff, uh, to possess to uh, zombie possession kind of things, to food, to tools. And, and how you would dictate that wasn't through voting, wasn't through buying anything, it was through what faction you decided to be on for that, and then you'd play one of the mini games. So you'd play, you know, if it's a match three, you have three different kinds of uh, items, um, you know, um, and you would only, if you wanted to to be the chaotic evil, you would go into surprise, and you would you would only contribute score towards surprise. And at the end of the thirty minute window, it would all get tallied up. And you'd see live, you know, who was winning kind of tug of war style. And then a bear would come and then all the AI would kind of run away from the bear. And like someone would try to have to attack the bear and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, wh why am I talking about this? What, because this this came back from the requests from viewers that they wanted to interact with with the continent in a different way. Right. It wasn't about them wanting a different outcome for the game, but they wanted to see and, and feel and interact with it. In a so what did we do? We, we took live game type thinking, brought it to procedural storytelling kind of choose our own adventure which didn't i mean telltale, telltale didn't like change output of the next uh, thing based on what the viewers or players wanted right there wasn't a way to do it because it was a package experience right and because it was a season where we could get that that information that that feedback live we were able to test things we were able to see what would work and what wouldn't work and we were able to in that season give them something that they asked for, which greatly increased kind of interest, right? Uh, we didn't give them everything they wanted and, and because that would have, you know, um, you have to stop somewhere. But that, that, that was one thing we learned that we can do this uh, and we can do it in a way that doesn't require you to download anything new, patch anything new um, or, or change anything. You just, log, you just log in like you always would and it's, it's changed, right? And, and so why is that important? Because it brings down friction. Right. And, and in, in gaming right now, you know, we take for granted that people are going to download a patch. They're going to, you know, install it. That's not a thing for casual audiences. They just expect it to work. They yeah. expect, you know, if I have five minutes in between feeding my kid, walking my dog and, and answering an email, I want immediate gratification and being able to have the, the touch point I want. 
right? And the minute I have to update is the minute I, I, I you know, it gets put down to the middle of the queue and then I, that's when I start churning, right? And what's the takeaway here for game developers? As we've gone from package games to online multiplayer games to these long games as a service, we're always, whether, whether we're releasing a new meta patch, whether we're releasing a new expansion, whether we're making you know, number two of the franchise, we're trying to combat churn through two ways, by, by keeping our current you know, player base um, engaged, but also trying to get back those people that churned off. Right? We take today churn as a given because we understand as game developers that we're not just competing with other games, we're competing with the rest of a player's life. And that life is comprised of not just other gaming opportunities, but, but other content. So uh, you know, everyone knows that, that Netflix thinks its biggest competitor is Fortnite. Why is that? Because they're competing for the same amount of, of, of time, which is you know, my um, non-work entertainment time, right? Uh, and, and I'm going to choose the one that is more engaging, and often engaging means more interactive. But with interaction, currently, it means playing a game, often online multiplayer, which is great if you have a lot of time. But we just, you know, my entire kind of argument is, we don't have a lot of time anymore, right? As we grow older, everything starts competing for our time. So for game developers, we have, I think, a, a challenge, which is how we think about how we keep people engaged with our content. And is it always going to be through this flaming platform of engaging them through changing the game, making it more challenging, making it more novel, making it something that, that, that keeps them in it? And my... Hypothesis is no, it's not. It's it's through taking. Obviously, you do that because you know that's your core game. You should you should do as much as you want with that. But there's other opportunities that you can grow, and and retain and attract more players, viewers, fans, consumers, users, and that's kind of the 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 real world sports model, right? Like you know we talk about esports. Esports, if you're going to put it in the pantheon of sports, it's a participant sport, not a spectator sport by which I'm defining it by the people who are watching it tend to be a sub-demographic of the people who play, yeah. as opposed to a spectator sport that is, you know, it's former players, if at all, if, or never players, people who are familiar with it, but, you know, they enjoy it irrespective of their skill-based interaction with that, that, that content. And that spectator experience is the opportunity, I think, for games in general. And what do I mean by that? Every churned player from football is a lifelong customer of football content, right? Because they identify with football, but they can no longer play because they got busy or they didn't make a uh, pro team. But That's they don't right. stop. They don't stop interacting with football. In fact, th their affinity for football and their lack of skill in many cases is what, what, what makes them <laughs> interact with football by going to, to the stadium and engaging in the cheer song and, and buying the supporter jersey and, and the, you know, the, the rally scarves and all that, that, all that stuff. Game developers, I think, we, we up until now have seen the world through one lens, which is the players on the field. And how do I get more players on the field? How do I make more fields? And once people are tired of the game, how do I you know, invent basketball? And that is one way of thinking, and that'll get you many, 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 sport, many, many sports. But as we're thinking about growing the lifespan of a game, we also need to think about, hey, people are, there's going to be people who love this game who are probably never going to play this game again. 
uh, and they have no way to interact with the game right now because you only have one way of interacting with it, there's a skill-based component to it. And if we did the exact same thing with movies and music and food, where I need to be good at you know, acting and performing the violin and cooking, we'd have absolutely no theaters um, you know, um, or restaurants, right? And, and you know, we have to kind of like expand our view that with the understanding that the IP and content we in the game industry are creating is so powerful and so popular and people have a lifelong connection to them. And currently the, the only way they can do it is maybe there'll be a Hollywood remake of, of the, using that IP, but that's not interactive, right? So, so it, there, there's an L and it's usually in no way or shape uh, authored by the developer who created the thing that they liked in the first place. It's, it's kind of licensed out. So it's kind of watered down um, um, you know, telephone game of what the original IP was. So there's an opportunity here, I think, for for developers and for for game developers to disrupt um, all other media because we're able to create long-term interactive experiences around IP that people love without having to reinvent the wheel every three years and without having to make things balanced with skill. Um, because how, you know, how do I keep the, the casual players while while keeping the the core play? That, that's you know, that's a balancing act that no one has solved because it's unsolvable because your 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 player base is evolving in real time, right? So, um, you know, giving up some of that as your core revenue, just like sports has, where it's not trying to change the rules and the, the size of the ball and you know what kind of shoes. It's about creating some standard around that so that you can draw you can drive people to the stadium and people can enjoy that together. And is that taking away from football? I don't think so. I think it's creating more opportunity around the game that everyone loves and creating more ways for people to feel empowered and, and, and um, uh, you know, engaged. I mean, I mean, yeah. So, so that's what I think we can learn a lot from it. I, I, I'm super excited to see what the, the next season of, of whatever the learnings are from Rival Peak are going to be. I, we've we've learned a lot from it. Uh, there is so much that we're working on right now. The the response has been amazing. Um, whether it's new IP or new ways to, to use these systems, or um, you know, we we launched Rival Peak without iOS support, uh, and we we quickly learned that we needed iOS support, and we we quickly added iOS support. And I think I you know, told the you so right. <laughs> indeed, indeed, everyone told us so. <laughs> Um, uh, and we were able to do it very quickly. Uh, and, uh, you know, we got really good results from that as well. And, you know, I, the, the next thing you see, I think will be both surprising and will feel like it's, I think, a logical evolution of what this medium should be. It's like, oh yes, of course this makes sense. I'm definitely um, very excited to see, uh, you know, the next thing that's that's going to come up uh, because I, I found it really fascinating. It, uh, you know, when you first talked to me about it uh, quite a while ago, actually when it was about to launch, uh, you know, I found it really interesting to see where it's going and uh, super exciting to hear, you know, all the insights that you had around Rival Peak. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious where you next go with this thing. And uh, I think, uh, you know, the statements that you made about um, 
empowering your your viewership uh, that you have on a game uh, they are pretty strong and it's something i can really encourage fellow game developers to think about uh, to not only think about the game and the player but think about who else is part of the ecosystem i think that's something that we often forget we all know there's twitch we all watch the uh, the stuff there but sometimes you know we forget it when when building a game that uh, this is an integral part of it and there's so much opportunity within that uh, and i think you know today's uh, talk with you today's conversation really highlighted that uh, so i'm very thankful for uh, having had you as a guest uh, today uh, i think you know with all the stuff you do at genvit uh, there's a lot of interesting opportunity um, for many game developers out there and i'm definitely um, looking forward to seeing more of what you're going to do uh, in the uh, not too distant future with that uh, and if people are uh, in a curious about how to utilize your technology i can uh, you know suggest they they reach out to you uh, and, and check it out uh, and hopefully we can do a follow-up at some point uh, and see you know how far you've taken it by then so i want to thank you very much uh, chris for for joining me today uh a super exciting episode and i hope it's as fun for the listeners uh, as it was for me recording it with you thank you very much Lars. Thank you for listening to a free episode of DevCom Podcast. More exclusive content at patreon.com slash devcom underscore C-O-N-F. Produced by Sven Fossin. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by weloveindies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany.